Welcome to episode 128. I'm back with another installment of the new series, A Century Ago in Kentucky. I got a lot of positive feedback about that. You all seem to really like it, so I'm going to continue doing it. I love doing the research, so it's a win-win. And this time we're looking at September 1923. First thing I want to say is that if anyone is ever planning to time travel to the 1920s, do not get in a car. Don't drive a car, don't get near a car, and whatever you do, do not get near a train while you're in a car. There are a crazy amount of reports of people dying from car mishaps, not even like car collisions, people falling out of vehicles, little children operating vehicles. It was just absolute chaos. And so I wanted to bring that up because it is a huge theme in the papers. Um, it seemed like, especially this month, for some reason, the roads were the Wild West of the 1920s. So other than that, we have some crime reports, we have some Klan activity, uh, women's suffrage, uh, some cute animal stories, and the State Fair was in September, so we're going to talk about that as well. All right, let's get into it. Welcome to Kentucky, a century ago. We'll start with crime. And please note, this section might seem a little light this month. That's because I pulled four stories that I'm going to dig into deeper on a subsequent episode. Last thing before I forget, I still owe a few people some stickers and other stuff. And I usually keep a, a back stock of that at my house and I've completely run out. So there is more on order. And as soon as it gets here, I will mail all of that out to you all. But in the meantime, if you want something other than just stickers, I do have a shop. It's on kyhistoryhaunts.com under the merch tab. Uh, there are beanies for fall. There are shirts and, let's see, tote bags and mugs and other fun stuff. So if you want to support the show, that's a great way to do it. All right, now we'll get started. Prisoner is shot trying to escape. Dayton, Kentucky. In the presence of a throng of nearly 200 persons who had been attending a session of police court, Police Chief Ortlieb tonight shot Joseph Brockhurd, 20 years old, mechanic, when Brockhurd attempted to escape while being taken from the courtroom to the Dayton jail. The bullet entered Brockhurd's right leg near the ankle, was deflected upward, came out near the knee, entered the leg again and lodged in the flesh of the thigh. Brockhurd had just been fined and sentenced to jail for violation of the traffic laws. One dead in duel, another shot in Maysville Street. Nine bullets fired in pistol battle, grudge held cause. Maysville. George Mitchell Jr., 25 years old, was killed, and Ben Middleman, 32, was seriously and perhaps fatally wounded in a pistol duel on a busy street corner here late this afternoon. Nine shots were fired, four by Mitchell and five by Middleman. Each received one wound. The streets were crowded at the time of the shooting. Police officers who investigated the shooting said they were unable to learn the cause, but it's said that an old grudge existed between the men. It's reported that Mitchell, today, had threatened to kill middlemen and that the latter had sought to avoid a meeting. About 5 o'clock this afternoon, middlemen walked down Market Street to 2nd Street and, seeing Mitchell on the corner, opened fire without saying a word. 
Mitchell fell at the first shot, but raising himself on his elbow, returned the fire. One bullet struck Middleman in the mouth and came out back of his ear. Middleman continued shooting. Both men were rushed to a hospital, but Mitchell died before he reached there. Mitchell had been in trouble several times. Middleman, a World War veteran, killed a Lewis County youth by striking him on the head with a single tree. He claimed that the youth was threatening his father. And as an aside, if you guys don't know what a single tree is, I didn't. I had to look it up. It's that connecting piece that attaches a, a horse to a plow. Here's an interesting one. Would-be suicide arrested by police. Fred DeWald, 40 years old, 1118 Fisher Avenue, was taken to the city hospital last night suffering from the effects of a liniment which the police said he drank in an attempt to commit suicide. After treatment at the hospital, DeWald was arrested on a charge of disorderly conduct. It was said the attempt was made because of ill health and the fact that DeWald has been out of employment. That's it. That's the whole article. This guy tried to kill himself and they arrested him for disorderly conduct. Mayor is charged with being drunk. Newport. Edward Junk, mayor of Clifton, was arraigned before Judge Matt Moore in Newport Police Court today on a charge of operating an automobile while intoxicated. His case was continued until Friday. Mayor Junk was arrested late yesterday. I bring this one up because this actually wasn't the first time the mayor was arrested for drunk driving. He was also arrested in May of that same year. Um, this time he was fined $100. He didn't serve any jail time, but I think he learned his lesson because there are no reports of him driving drunk in the following year. Here's one of those examples of why you should never ride in a car in the 1920s. Fiance dies in fall from auto neck broken by tumble during ride with man she was to marry soon. A final tragic chapter in the romance of a young girl preparing for her wedding was written at six o'clock last night when she fell from an automobile driven by her fiance and was almost instantly killed. The young girl, Miss Blanche Woodward, 18 years old, 1508 Story Avenue, was riding with R.S. Allen, 35, 2042 Portland Avenue. Perturbed because a door of the car refused to stay closed, she gave it a hard pull. Alan, watching traffic, heard it slam but did not turn his head. A few seconds later, he glanced around and found the seat beside him vacant. Miss Woodward had fallen from the car. She lay in the street, dying. With Miss Ruby Monahan, who lives on the second floor of 942 South 5th Street, in front of which the girl fell, Allen carried her inside the house to the apartments of Mrs. Louise Gatler. Dr. D. E. Abrams, 415 West Chestnut Street, was called, but before he arrived, Miss Woodward had died in the arms of her sweetheart. Dr. Roy L. Carter, coroner, said death was due to a broken neck. He also said that she had suffered a fracture of the base of the skull. Allen, when questioned at police headquarters, told the story of the romance that was ended by death. Miss Woodward, he said, was a sophomore at the Louisville Girls High School until the end of the first semester last year when she quit school to earn her own living as a restaurant employee. He met her in the restaurant, he said, and the romance began. 
Allen, a manufacturer of toilet articles at 118 West Chestnut Street, employed Miss Woodward to act as demonstrator of his goods. They had planned to be married in a few weeks, Allen sobbed to the police. Miss Woodward had lived with her two sisters, Miss Connie Woodward and Mrs. William Bailey. Besides them, she is survived by her father, William Woodward of Ferdinand, Indiana. The body of the girl was taken to Manning's Chapel. So, I don't know about you guys, I have some thoughts about this one. Um, I didn't really see any follow-up about it, so I don't think Mr. Allen was ever charged with anything. But there are a few things that caught my attention, one being that she was 18 and he was 35, uh, which wasn't that strange back then, but still, that's a big age difference. And uh, the other being how that happened. He, she was in the passenger seat, he was right next to her, and he didn't see this all go down because he was watching traffic. Come on, there's, there's something going on here. We're going to go ahead and move on to Klan activity in 1923, September. I think it's worth mentioning that things were really coming to a head with the KKK in Oklahoma during this time, and I think people from Kentucky were starting to look at what was going on in Oklahoma and other southern states and kind of saying, you know, do we really want this here? Um, they were getting extremely violent. And so what you actually end up seeing, uh, not always, but in a lot of places, uh, is people fighting the Klan, you know, fighting back, telling them, you know, you can't wear hooded robes and prance around our town. So um, for this first example, it says, use of tabernacle is refused to Klan. Christian County officials issue statement on advertised meeting. Hopkinsville. The management of the tabernacle has withdrawn permission for a meeting in the interest of the Ku Klux Klan advertised to be held there Friday night. Whether an effort will be made to hold the meeting elsewhere is not known. County officials issued the following statement this afternoon. We do not hesitate to state to the citizens of Christian County that we do not approve of any secret organization founded upon religious or racial prejudice and designed to disturb the public peace and incite ill will and ill feeling among the people of Christian County. We have been entrusted by the people of Christian County with the administration of the law. We feel that no such situation had arisen as to require invisible empire, and we hereby pledge ourselves to keep free from any entangling alliance with any such organization, and we hereby declare to the public we do not propose to lend any aid. So, a little wordy and a little messy, but... You know, they're saying we're not going to affiliate with these guys. Ban is put on Klan in Madison County, Richmond. County Judge John D. Goodlow, called on by an advance agent of the Ku Klux Klan, who asked permission to bring men from headquarters to address citizens of Madison County in an effort to organize a branch of the Klan here, announced that he will have anyone arrested who attempts to hold Klan meetings in Madison County. Good on you, Judge. Now, I forgot to separate. Uh, there's another little article under this one, and I forgot to move it out of my Klan section, and I'm afraid if I don't read it to you now, I'll forget about it. So 
This doesn't have anything to do with the clan, but I thought it was interesting. It says, 700 gather at Poe family's reunion, Augusta, Kentucky. More than 700 descendants of the Poe family held their annual reunion near Augusta. The Poe family claims among its early members Edgar Allan Poe, the poet. Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia were represented at the gathering. So yeah, totally unrelated to the KKK, but I had never heard that before. Apparently we had a lot of Poe descendants in Kentucky. Clan agents to leave Madison agree to stop organization work when peace bond is required. Goodlow accepts offer. Richmond. The Ku Klux Klan has agreed to cease activities in Madison County, according to an announcement here today by J.A. Colescott of Lexington, reported to be the head of the Klan in the state. The announcement was made after County Judge John D. Goodlow demanded a $1,000 peace bond for E.H. Lawfer, a national Ku Klux speaker. Colescott put up a $2,000 cash bond for the release of Lawfer, who was arrested here Tuesday night on a criminal criminal syndicalism charge for his appearance before the October grand jury. Lawfer waived examining trial, which had been set for Friday. When it came to making the peace bond, the Klan leaders told Judge Goodlow that if he would waive that, they would agree to cease activities in Madison County. Judge Goodlow replied that he was inclined to take them at their word. He told them that Madison County did not want any organization in its midst that was calculated to stir up trouble among its people and accepted their word that Klan activities in this county will cease. Patrolman gets KKK warning. Skull, crossbones, on bottle, left for county policemen. Louisville. A warning in the form of an empty whiskey bottle on which was painted a skull and crossbones and the letters KKK, which was left in front of his camp on the bank of the Ohio River at the west end of Shawnee Park, failed to frighten Fred Springer, special county patrolman, who has concentrated his activities on liquor law violators. The decorated bottle was left in a conspicuous place the morning after several men whom he had arrested while attempting to sell liquor along the riverbank to campers had been convicted in magistrate's court. If the bottle and its adornments were intended to frighten him, it sure fell short, Mr. Springer said. So while in some places we see government entities cracking down on Klan activity, that's not happening everywhere. For example, ordinance against masking defeated. Shelbyville. The Board of Council Friday night rejected, by vote of three to two, an ordinance introduced at the preceding meeting to prohibit the public assemblage on the streets of persons wearing masks or hoods to conceal their identity. In the discussion which preceded, preceded the vote, Mayor Hall called attention to the fact that the proposed ordinance provided a legal method of enforcing the instructions he had given the police with the consent of the council before the first Ku Klux Klan speaking in Shelbyville not to interfere unless the members appeared masked or there was disorder. So this is kind of interesting. The mayor said before they voted, you know, I gave us the lenience to arrest these people if they are wearing masks. So why don't we let them continue wearing masks so that we can arrest them more easily? 
I don't know. Let me know what you think about that one. Last one on the KKK for this month. It reads, Clan denounced by State Legion. Resolution adopted by Ashland Convention, reiterating previous stand. Severe condemnation for the Ku Klux Klan was contained in a resolution passed tonight by the American Legion of Kentucky. Adoption of this resolution, together with one supporting the $50 million road bond issue, was received with cheers. The text of the resolution on the Klan follows. Two years ago, the American Legion of Kentucky declared its attitude toward the Ku Klux Klan in unmistakable terms. Subsequent events and developments have confirmed and justified the attitude, and the Legion's belief is that there is no place for an invisible empire, and that no true American can owe a double allegiance or better serve his country in time of peace than by open and public support by act and word of law and order, as enforced through constitutionally established agencies. Membership in the American Legion and fidelity to its pledges are inconsistent with membership in the Ku Klux Klan. Just a brief section on politics this month, and actually it's about women's right to vote. So this is from September 7th, 1923. The headline reads, Vote by Women Members Issue. Democratic Committee Divided on Their Participation in Naming Ticket Head. If a committee nomination for governor is made at the meeting in Louisville Saturday, four members of the Democratic State Executive Committee, Joseph Robinson, Cecil Williams, Bailey Wooten, and Charles Hubbard, favor a plan under which women members of the committee can vote in the selection of the nominee. Five other members are non-committal on the question of the women voting, and the remaining three men members cannot be reached by telephone. Judge Charles A. Hardin, Harrodsburg, chairman of the committee, wants all members of the committee, both men and women, to be present for the meeting Saturday to participate, as far as possible, in the settlement of party affairs. Dr. J.D. Whitaker, John L. Dorsey, Fred Forched, W.N. Hind, and Dr. T.R. Welch have not decided what position they will take on the question of the women members voting on the nominee should the committee make the nomination. Tom Turner, Cerulean Springs, William F. Clare, Lexington, and Dr. John Ferguson, Central City, could not be reached by telephone. Dr. Welch, while undecided, thinks the women should be allowed to vote if their votes are legal and will not nullify the action of the committee. Mr. Hind has no objection to the women voting if they have the right, but he had heard that the chairman of the committee had ruled it would not be legal. Mr. Hubbard, in stronger language, declared it would be a shame to deny the women an equal voice in the selection of the nominee. Mr. Dorsey did not know the right of the women to vote in the selection of the nominee was being questioned, he said. Mr. Robinson wants to be as liberal with the women as is consistent with the law and the rules of the party. And Mr. Williams, putting aside thoughts of law and rules, does not want, at this late hour, to tell the women you cannot have a voice in the naming of the candidate. Mr. Wooten, though of the opinion that as a strictly legal matter the women cannot vote, believes it would be a mistake to deny them a voice in the matter and favors a plan to give them equal representation. Compromise plan suggested. The plan, 
a compromise arrangement is to let the 12 men members and the 12 women members of the committee ballot until a choice has been made and then have that choice ratified by the men members. Such an arraignment, Mr. Williams said, arrangement would give every member, man and woman, a vote. Mr. Wooten accepts the plan as a good solution of the matter and would like to see the committee adopt it. It would solve the problem, he thinks, and play fair with the women in the Democratic Party. Mr. Hind views the suggestion from a different angle and fears it might lead to complications and the necessity of doing the work over again. Mr. Welch thinks the women might allow the men to choose the candidate and then ratify the men's work. The entire matter was news to Mr. Dorsey, who said he wanted to think it over before reaching a decision. He said he plans to consult other members of the committee about the compromise suggestion and get all possible information before the meeting Saturday. Maysville, Kentucky was actually moving on a little more progressively than other parts of the state. Uh, women had the right to vote in certain districts, from what I understand. But then that brought up a whole new issue about, well, wait, do we, do we give them a poll tax? Can they, can they be taxed? Um, so in September, the, this little article came out that says, poll tax on women illegal is ruling. Mayor J.H. Samuel today received an opinion from T.B. McGregor, Attorney General, that there is no authority to impose a poll tax on women voters. For the first time in the history of Mason County, women will be officers of registration and election this year, several having been appointed today by the election commissioners. Good job, Maysville. Lazy, tired, and weak? or full of malaria? The body depends entirely on the blood for strength. If the blood is weak, the body is weak. A poison in the blood, such as malaria, can weaken the body to a dangerous degree and render the muscles infirm. Malarial germs increase and spread rapidly in the blood. Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic destroys malarial germs in the blood and removes the impurities. It purifies and enriches the blood. It restores energy and vitality by creating new, healthy blood. When you feel its strengthening, invigorating effect, see how it brings color to the cheeks and how it improves the appetite. You will then appreciate its true tonic value. Very pleasant to take. 60 cents. A package of Grove's liver pills is enclosed with every bottle of Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic for those who wish to take a laxative in connection with the tonic. Now I have a couple animal-related stories, and you may have already seen this first one. I posted it on social media, but it's so sweet. It's an obituary, and it says, Animal, bird friend is dead. Captain George S. Bowman, 73, had been Cherokee Park guard for 20 years. When Captain George S. Bowman died at SS Mary and Elizabeth Hospital at 5 o'clock yesterday morning, the birds, the squirrels, the rabbits, and other small animals of Cherokee Park lost one of their oldest and truest friends. Captain Bowman had been a guard at the park for 20 years, receiving his appointment from the late General John B. Castleman, a former president of the Board of Park Commissioners. The birds and the animals would come at his bidding. They would eat from his hand and perch on his shoulder or play about his feet. The little wild creatures naturally became tame, affording nature lovers who frequented the park delightful studies. 
If he had found it necessary, Captain Bowman probably would have given his particular favor to a pair of robins, which he had christened Mr. and Mrs. Ty Cobb. He taught them to catch on the wing bits of food tossed high in the air. Captain Bowman had been in ill health for two years, but until last June, fine weather always found him at the park. He lived at the home of his sister, Mrs. Margaret Hacker, 236 East Oak Street. His other survivors are Mrs. Mary Bryant of El Paso, Texas, a sister, and John M. Bowman of Los Angeles, California, a brother. During the Spanish-American War, Captain Bowman was in command of Company G of the 1st Kentucky Volunteer Regiment. He served throughout the war, gaining distinction at Puerto Rico. When he first came to Louisville from Bullock County, where he was born, he acted as caretaker of the Old Armory on 7th Street and later of the Jefferson County Armory. Funeral services will be held at 8.30 o'clock tomorrow morning at the residence of his sister and at 9 o'clock at St. Louis Bertrand Catholic Church. Burial will be in St. Louis Cemetery. This next one is about when the uh, circus came to the Kentucky State Fair, and it says, Never again, says Farmer Lion Tamer. Paul Dare Sarkissian of New Albany was a visitor at the John Robinson Circus yesterday and looked at the lions interestedly. Thousands of other persons did too, but Mr. Dare Sarkissian had a special interest. Mr. Dare Sarkissian was a lion tamer with the John Robinson Circus for five years. In November 1920, at Poplar Bluff, Missouri, a lion attacked him, as the empty left shirt sleeve of his coat attests. Now he runs a confectionery at 144 East Spring Street, New Albany. So Mr. Dares Sarkissian looked at the lions yesterday with a special interest and said, never again, both in Armenian, his native tongue, and in English. Next, I have just some general kind of miscellaneous topics to report. So the first one is that the Barling Bomber is to fly over city. The Barling Bomber, the world's largest airplane, will visit Louisville and some of the largest cities in the country, including Chicago, next week, an Associated Press dispatch from Dayton said yesterday. Officers of McCook Field decided on the tour yesterday. The Louisville visit was brought about by A.H. Bowman, who visited McCook Field Labor Day and persuaded the officers to send the giant plane here. It will be unable to land here because of its size. Girl, 16, sues mate of 60 for divorce, was forced by parents to marry, her petition sets forth. Mrs. Margaret McCary, 16 years old, yesterday filed suit for divorce in the circuit court against her husband, John McCary, 60, alleging that she was compelled to leave his home, 1116 West Broadway, Thursday, on account of his cruelty. She states that she was but 15 years old when she was married, September 12, 1922, in English, Indiana, and that she married through command of her father and her stepmother. 
She says her husband brought her to Louisville and placed her under the management of Mrs. Ida Williams, that her husband refused to provide for her, and that she had to subsist on what Mrs. Williams gave her. Aside from the divorce, Mrs. McCary also seeks $50 a month alimony during the pendency of the litigation and permanent alimony to be fixed by the court. And you know what? A 16-year-old having to marry a 60-year-old, she deserved every penny, and I hope she got it. What is wrong with her parents? This is another one out of Louisville. The headline reads, Insanitary hovels found often in central sections. 19 persons in two families lived in this six-room house. Family service organization seeks to overcome squalid conditions that lead to illness and dire poverty. Poor housing in Louisville is often the cause of illness and poverty, according to Linton B. Swift, General Secretary of the Family Service Organization. Bad sanitary conditions of the homes, overcrowding, and lack of the proper sewage and water facilities exist to a deplorable extent in the city, he declared. Workers for the Family Service Organization, one of the 30 organizations in the Welfare League, have found as many as 19 persons living in a small, tumble-down shack. In one case, Mr. Swift said, nine people lived in two rooms. The agency is working in cooperation with the health authorities of Louisville to remove such conditions. It reports unsanitary conditions discovered by the workers, and the health department orders the owners of the houses to correct them. The organization works to prevent overcrowding by finding other and better homes for the families. Illness often comes from poor housing conditions, Mr. Swift declared, and after the breadwinner of the family is unable to work, the family service organization is called upon, in many cases, to prevent the family from falling into the direst poverty. Some of the worst conditions of unsanitary housing, it was said, are to be found in the little hovels opening onto alleyways near the central part of the city. Several of the workers stated yesterday that those who go along the main streets cannot imagine the poverty and squalor in the rear where these visitors are often called to help families solve the problems of keeping the wolf from the door. Backfire expert nabbed by police. James Moore, 38 years old, 903 West Market Street, Louisville, is in jail in New Albany on a charge of operating an automobile while drunk. He will be given a hearing before Mayor Robert W. Morris today. Moore, who was driving a new car, was giving an exhibition at the post office corner of how he could make the engine backfire. It sounded like a machine gun fusillade and attracted a crowd. Among others who were attracted to the scene were Chief of Police Carson and Sergeants Maiden and Merkel, who placed Moore under arrest. I mentioned the Kentucky State Fair was going on, and so I put together a couple quick articles related to that. And the first one here is just to give you an idea of what kind of exhibits they displayed back then. It says, First Rail Coach in Fair Exhibits. B&O sends relic of early days to state show here. Saddle steak rich, circus is due tomorrow. Through the courtesy of Daniel Willard, president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company, the first passenger coach built in America for rail service will be exhibited at the State Fair next week, according to W.C. Hanna of Frankfurt, chairman of the State Fair Board, which met yesterday on the grounds to complete plans for the annual event. 
Other exhibits will include the first steam engine used in America and a little 10-passenger coach sent from England to Nova Scotia to be used on the first Canadian railroad in 1835. The richest stake to be decided during the fair will be the selection of the world champion five-gated saddle horse. A $10,000 stake in four divisions, the Watterson stake for stallions, the Louisville Old Inn stake for mares, and the Tyler stake for geldings. Winners of these three stakes will be eligible to compete for the Seelbach Cup, emblematic of the World Championship. Gypsies fold up tents and leave city by request. Auto caravan heads for Indianapolis. Policeman is persuader. Like the famed Arabs of song and story, several hundred gypsies who have been making their headquarters in Louisville yesterday folded their tents and silently stole away. Their caravan of automobiles pointed its nose toward Indianapolis. Although Mayor Quinn and Colonel Forrest Braden, chief of police, both had fought the stay of the gypsies in Louisville, credit for their abrupt departure rests in a large measure with patrolman Edward Gernert, who had threatened arrest of all male members of the band unless they left Louisville. He also warned them he would have their children, who played in the streets half-naked, placed in the detention home. On Market Street, west of 6th Street, where the gypsies had been particularly numerous and where fortune-telling establishments were to be found every few paces, the nomads were few and far between last night. A few still remain in the city, but they are expected to make speedy exodus. Rivalry between the tribes and individual quarreling were the source of much trouble for the police. John Bimbo, leader of one of the tribes which left yesterday, has a case in criminal court against Steve Coatello, leader of another tribe. Eleven alleged hobos arrested in cars. To prevent the Kentucky State Fair from being flooded with undesirables, 11 alleged hobos were arrested last night by detectives at the Louisville and Nashville Railroad when the men were found in freight cars in Highland Park. They were charged with riding railway trains. Those arrested gave their names as Charles Boone, 18 years old, Fred Jones, 20, Ollie Hall, 22, Wallace Lilly, 20, Gray Mead, 24, Al Cardwell, 25, James Smith, 19, and Martin Benita, 19, white men and Dan Owens, 54, Ben Tucker, 19, and James Thomas, 27, Negroes. The officer said that the men were from all parts of the country. Firm, plump flesh. Many are the eyes that are turned to gaze with keen admiration on the well-developed, healthy girl no matter where she may be, on the rapidly moving thoroughfare or gliding gracefully over the dance floor. All eyes turn because we all appreciate the girl with the figure so firm and plump, the girl with radiantly red cheeks, cheeks that carry a touch of roses from nature's own garden, the girl with the sparkling eyes, keen and sharp, the girl with buoyancy and the swing of youth. Not necessarily an out-of-doors girl, just a girl with ever-increasing blood cells, just a girl filled with vim and vigor of youth. SSS, since 1826, has stood for increased blood cells. 
SSS means restored strength, rekindled vitality, added energy. Take SSS and watch the bloom of youth return to your cheeks. Watch that flabby, ill-nourished flesh fade away before flesh that is firm and plump. Red blood cells will do it and SSS will build them. It contains only pure vegetable ingredients. SSS is sold at all good drugstores. The large size bottle is more economical. Another big headline in the 1920s was always whatever was going on with the Prohibition saga at the moment. And September was actually a pretty good month for that because there was this ongoing story when federal agents shot up a Courier-Journal truck. So it's covered in the paper heavily uh, because it involves the Courier-Journal, which made it very interesting. So the first time we hear about this, it says... Man probably fatally shot as dry agents hold up Courier-Journal truck. Victim unconscious in Shelbyville Hospital. Driver declares that automobile was fired on without warning. Prohibition men say accident. John Arnold of Frankfurt was shot and seriously injured at 1 o'clock this morning on the Frankfurt Pike on the outskirts of Shelbyville when the Courier-Journal truck on which he was riding was stopped by Prohibition agents. According to Wheeler Hughes, driver of the truck, the Prohibition agents fired into the truck without warning. According to Thomas Server, member of the Shelbyville Police Force, a shotgun was accidentally discharged by one of the dry agents. The Prohibition agents were Elsie Roberts, W.W. Wooten, M.L. Rowland, and C.W. Hurst. According to the story told by the Prohibition agents, a shotgun was accidentally discharged, causing Arnold's wound. Hughes said that Thomas Server, a constable, asked him to carry free passengers to Frankfurt. When near the bridge in Shelbyville, they were stopped by automobiles of the Prohibition men, which blocked the road. They proceeded about 50 feet when shots came from the rear and one side of the road. I only heard one shot. Hughes said. They must have all fired at once. We waited for nearly 10 minutes before the agents came out of hiding. Arnold got on the truck at Shelbyville. Prohibition officers, Lee C. Roberts, W.W. Wooten, M.L. Rowland, and C.W. Hurst stopped the truck and Rowland said a shotgun in his hand was accidentally discharged. Arnold was taken to the King's Daughters Hospital at Shelbyville. Wheeler Hughes, 428 North 28th Street, was the driver of the truck, which was en route from Louisville to Lexington via Shelbyville and Frankfurt. According to Server, Prohibition officers said they stopped the truck because they thought it was carrying whiskey. A physician was summoned from Louisville to operate on Arnold. The Prohibition officers returned to Louisville following the shooting. No arrests were made. The next update in the paper reads, Dry men to be held in firing on CJ truck. Shelby County authorities issue warrants for prohibition men. Accused not found. Miller hints he may ask U.S. aid to prevent arrests. Four prohibition agents will be arraigned in the Shelbyville Police Court at 2 o'clock this afternoon for an examining trial in connection with the shooting and probable mortal wounding of John Arnold, 28 years old, who lives in Shallowfield near Frankfurt. While riding a mail truck of the Courier-Journal near Shelbyville early yesterday, Arnold was wounded by a shot which came from the party. Each agent is charged with malicious shooting and wounding, 
and attempt to kill. The agents are M.L. Rowland, Lee C. Roberts, W.W. Wooten, and C.W. Hurst. The bullets were fired from Rowland's automatic shotgun. When warrants were sworn out at Shelbyville in the afternoon for the arrest of the agents, P. Green Miller, chief of the Prohibition Forces in Kentucky and Tennessee, communicated over the telephone with H.B. Kinsolving, Commonwealth's Attorney C.G. Berkman, County Attorney, and O.T. Kaltenbacher, police court judge, in an effort to prevent the immediate arrest of the men. Mr. Miller said he would bring them to court today for trial. The Shelbyville authorities informed Mr. Miller that they would arrest the men and that no preference would be shown them because they were prohibition agents. Unable to find men. Mr. Miller is said to have intimated that if the agents were arrested, he would ask for a writ of habeas corpus from the federal court for their release. Soon after Mr. Miller's conversation with the Shelbyville authorities, Isaiah Fox, a Shelbyville constable, arrived in Louisville with warrants for the arrest of the four prohibition agents. He was unable to find them. Slight improvement in the condition of Arnold was shown yesterday, according to a report from the King's Daughter Hospital at Shelbyville, where he was taken. He was shot through the stomach and the edge of the spleen. He has a chance to live if periton peritonitis does not set in, his physician said. Mrs. Arnold, his wife, arrived at the hospital yesterday from their home where she left their young daughter and an infant son. S.M. Calvert, 32 years old, Frankfurt, another occupant of the truck, suffered a slight flesh wound in the neck. Trial of four dry officers is postponed. Men implicated in fire on courier journal truck are given bond. Victim has a chance. Request to release three agents denied. Case set for Wednesday. Trial of the four prohibition officers implicated in the shooting of John Arnold of Franklin County early Thursday was continued until 1 o'clock Wednesday afternoon when the officers appeared in court yesterday. Arnold was wounded when Prohibition Officer L.M. Rowland fired into the Courier-Journal mail truck on the outskirts of Shelbyville. The examining trial was held in the Court of Police Judge O.T. Kaltenbacher in Shelbyville yesterday. The continuance was made on motion of the Commonwealth that Arnold is in no condition to testify and the other witnesses for the prosecution had not been summoned because the defendants were not formally before the court until yesterday afternoon. It was announced at the King's Daughters Hospital in Shelbyville at night that Arnold's condition is serious, but he has a chance of recovery provided complications do not set in. He is suffering from wounds inflicted by a shotgun. The bullets entered his spleen and stomach. Roland was placed under a $2,000 bond while the other officers, Roberts, Wooten, and Hurst, were ordered to give bonds of $500 each. The charge was maliciously and feloniously shooting with intent to kill. Bonds were supplied by P. Green Miller, Chief Prohibition Agent for Kentucky and Tennessee, and M. Ray Yarbury, 2416 Elliott Avenue. Mr. Miller took the accused men to Shelbyville after efforts to apprehend them in Louisville had failed. A request of B.J. Bethurum, Lexington, Prohibition Department Counsel, that only Roland be required to furnish bail and the other agents be released on their own recognizance was denied. According to the officers, the shooting was an accident caused when Roland's shotgun was discharged accidentally. 
They had been detailed to Shelbyville to watch for a rum-running truck disguised as a newspaper truck, they said. Dry agent's victim sues for 25000 John Arnold wounded when CJ truck was halted. Asking damages of $25,000, John Arnold filed suit today in Shelby Circuit Court against prohibition agents who were in the party that halted a mail truck of the Courier-Journal September 13th when Arnold, a passenger, was wounded. The defendants named in the petition are M.L. Rowland, who admitted firing the shot that wounded Arnold, Roberts, Hurt, and P. Green Miller, general agent in charge of the Western District of Kentucky. Arnold lists a hospital bill of $75, physician's fee of $200, and loss of time, $500. The shooting occurred near the bridge over Clear Creek. The last time I could find anything about this shooting was almost a year later in August 1924. And it's actually not even about John Arnold, it's about another similar incident. It says, Dry agent held at Shelbyville. Miller wants case of Raider who shot at innocent man in federal court. Albert Ranstall, prohibition agent in charge of the party who fired on Marvin Newton last Thursday night while he was returning home from church services, in county court here today in answer to a charge of malicious shooting with intent to kill, waived preliminary examination and was held to the grand jury under $1,200 bond. The bond was signed by P. Green Miller, Chief of the Enforcement Agents of Kentucky and Tennessee, and B.F. Unthank, a Lexington Prohibition Officer. The only witness introduced at the hearing for bail was Newton, who repeated the story he had told previously about the affair. Mr. Miller made no secret of the fact that he would attempt to have the case transferred to federal court, as he did the case against the agent who fired on John Arnold, a passenger in a mail truck of the Courier-Journal. Local authorities will resist the effort to have the case transferred. Now, I don't know for certain because I cannot find anything about it anywhere, but I'm guessing that the Prohibition agents were successful in getting that, that last case transferred to federal court, and I'm going to guess it got dismissed. So... That was probably the end of that, and that's why I can't find anything else about it in the local papers. U.S. to mop up poison rum here. New drive against bootleggers and dope vendors is started by District Chief. A concerted drive by federal agents against bootleggers and drug peddlers is on, it was announced yesterday. The cooperation of city and county authorities, it was said, is counted on. Manslaughter indictments of bootleggers who may be proven to have sold poisonous liquor and so to have brought about the death of a human being will be sought by his agents as a part of the program of increased activity, P. Green Miller, General Prohibition Agent, said. Coroner Roy L. Carter and Commonwealth's Attorney Joseph S. Lawton said they will cooperate. Mr. Lawton expressed the opinion that in certain cases, his office may find sufficient ground for asking for indictments with the reasonable expectation of obtaining convictions. Colonel Will Gray Beach, federal narcotic agent in charge of the District of Chicago, arrived here yesterday to make this his headquarters for several weeks and said that a campaign of unprecedented intensity will be waged against the drug traffic in Louisville and vicinity. Conditions here he characterized as extremely bad. 
Mr. Miller's announcement of a new drive against the liquor traffickers and of his intention to ask for manslaughter indictments against vendors of poisonous liquor followed a warning given to the public earlier in the day in which he said that Louisville is being flooded with counterfeit liquor, much of it poisonous, in preparation for the crowds which are expected to attend the Kentucky State Fair. Much of the liquor being brought here appears to be good liquor, Mr. Miller said, and may even taste right. It may even sport authentic-looking labels and government stamps. Nevertheless, he said, analysis of such samples taken in recent raids have shown it to be just as truly poisonous as is carbolic acid. The easiest way of extracting teeth is the best. There certainly is no easier way at present of extracting teeth than our nitrous oxide and oxygen way, and therefore no better way. Furthermore, this method is so easy and altogether pleasant that there is no need for a better way to remove teeth. When you can come into our office with any number of the worst kind of teeth in your mouth and have them extracted without knowing it's being done and then leave here feeling as good and better than you did when you came, what more good can an ill wind blow? Thousands have experienced this in our dental home and any one of them will tell you there is no need to hesitate and that no easier or better method of extraction could be desired. The easiest way is the best, so if you are afflicted with bad teeth, you'll do well to have them out, and our office is the safe place to have it done. Doctors Harrison and Strasburg, 231 South 4th Street, next to Dan Cohen Shoe Store. If it ever seems like I'm overdoing it on the prohibition articles a little bit, I probably am. I just can't help myself. It's I'm fascinated by that part of history, by prohibition and how poorly executed it was by state and federal governments and just all the bad side effects of um, making alcohol illegal. And I mean, it, it was just absolute chaos and you know, obviously how much organized crime benefited from it. But what I what I really find interesting is the craftiness of the people who made the bootleg alcohol. And um, I always remember this one scene. I started watching Boardwalk Empire in high school, and it's been my favorite show ever since. And there's that one episode where Nucky Thompson goes into the funeral home, which is it has a distillery underneath of it. And he goes in the front entrance because he didn't he didn't know. And there was a funeral going on. And this old lady runs up to him and she's like, oh, my God, thank you so much for coming to my husband's funeral or whatever. And um, really, he was just there to check on, you know, his his distillery. But um, I found this article that is it's just from Louisville. And it kind of demonstrates how crafty people were getting in Louisville. And so it says, Whiskey pipe to bar from roof. Rating officers follow rum line to supply tank in Wenzel Street chimney. Whiskey pipe to bar from roof. Rating officers follow rum line to supply tank in Wenzel Street chimney. Police became suspicious yesterday when they found a copper pipe leading to the bar and the soft drink stand of Herbert Reitzel, 24 years old, 416 South Wenzel Street. The pipe was traced to the second floor and from there to the roof where it led to the chimney. An inspection of the chimney disclosed a three-gallon copper tank filled with moonshine whiskey. 
Reitzel was arrested and charged with possessing whiskey. The soft drink stand of James Duncan, 25, 532 South Jackson Street, was raided by police yesterday, and the officers had begun to despair of finding any evidence when one of them noticed a part of the wallpaper to be of lighter color than the rest. The paper was removed, and 23 half pints of whiskey found in an aperture in the wall. A charge of possessing liquor was placed against Duncan. Miss Ida Winchell, 46 years old, 634 South 6th Street, was arrested yesterday on a charge of possessing intoxicating liquor when police raided her home and found a complete bottling outfit in her cellar. Besides the apparatus, 50 quarts of homebrew and 1,000 empty bottles were found. Scott Durham and Charles Myers, 26, were arrested yesterday when police raided the latter's soft drink stand at 4th and Avery Streets and found half a pint of whiskey. Myers was charged with possessing whiskey, and Durham was charged with being drunk in a public place and breach of the peace when he was found asleep on a pool table in the place. Agents dynamite 750-gallon still, largest plant seized in county found near Cane Run Road. Dynamite was used yesterday by federal prohibition agents to destroy the largest still they have seized in Jefferson County since prohibition went into effect. It had a capacity of 750 gallons and produced 400 gallons of moonshine whiskey daily, according to the agents. Six agents and five city policemen waited for two hours in the morning at the still, which was located near Cane Run Road, two miles from the city limits, before men charged with being the owners arrived. Will C. Kennedy, 23 years old, and H. C. Schiffman, 35, were arrested. A warrant was sworn out for the arrest of Walter McMillan, charged with being implicated in its operation. They will be arraigned before J. A. Kraft, United States Commissioner, this morning. Raiders confiscated 89 50-gallon barrels of mash. That's going to do it for today's episode. One last thing I want to mention, I do have a store on the website and I'm trying to update it more often and I do design all this stuff myself, but if you go to kyhistoryhaunts.com and you click on the merch tab, that will take you to this world of cool Kentucky themed stuff, including t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, uh, tote bags, mugs, stickers, stuff like that. It's a great way to support the show because then you can wear that stuff out and about people will ask you about it maybe and you can tell them oh it's this girl that makes this really cool podcast and she made this shirt and you should go follow her right that's how I picture that playing out in my head so again that's kyhistoryhaunts.com and then go to the merch tab I do giveaways from time to time so you could get some of this stuff for free make sure you're following me on social media for that so on Facebook, search Kentucky History and Haunts, and look for the group, too, which is the same name, but and more at the end, Kentucky History and Haunts and more. And uh, on Instagram, it's just at KY History Haunts, all right? And if you ever want to talk to me one-on-one, send me a message, maybe a topic suggestion, you can email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. You can DM me on social media. I'll probably see it there, too. Might take a little longer to get back to you. All right, that's all I've got. I hope you guys are having a great fall so far. See you again soon. Thanks for listening.